Welcome to Reading Between the Times, one book club, two queers, and our three pets. We are your hosts, Rena and Lana. Join us as we find refuge in favorite childhood stories to escape our current lives as mid-20 queers living through fascism and a global pandemic. Magic, beauty, identity, friendship, struggle, it's all here. Every episode will feature one book from authors like Susan Collins and E.B. White, where we will discuss details such as character development, plot lines, core themes, and their connections to our lives and the world today. We'll have occasional cameos from Harriet the Dog, Freddy the Cat, and Junie the Kitten. Today, we will be exploring Princess Academy by Shannon Hale. This podcast will contain spoilers, so if you haven't read the book yet and you're planning to, stop listening now. Or don't complain when you do read it and you know everything that happens. Shannon Hale has written many books, such as The Books of Bayern and The Princess Academy series. All of her books for middle grade readers feature girls finding empowerment. So, why we chose this book. Simply put, we love it. We thought we'd both read it as kids, but turns out Lana read it in college. Whoopsie doopsie. But since I read it in elementary school, we will be using my experience to compare between my childhood and our lives today. And I will pretend I knew what my childhood self would have thought. Alright, so let's get right into it. And away we go! And away we go! So our story starts off at Mount Eskel, which is a territory in Danland. And we're in like a little village where our main character, Miri, lives with her sister and her dad and the other villagers. One of her favorite villagers is Peter because they've been best friends since they were little. But now Miri's 14. And so, of course, in a book, that means that maybe she has a crush on Peter. She doesn't know, though. She's just confused. And feels silly when she talks to him. Very relatable content. Mm -hmm. On this ordinary day, when Mary wakes up, she takes her goats to the pasture. She complains and whines and is sad because she can't go into the mines to work with the other villagers to get the linder, which is their village's only export. And she feels weak and small. But she's excited because the traders from the lowlands, the rest of Danland, are coming today. And that means that she'll be able to stock up on goods and things for her and Pa and Marta so that they don't starve over the winter, which is a real possibility. Yeah, they live in a very poverty-stricken area since um, Mount Askell is a territory. It's not really considered to be of much importance to the king. So they really have to struggle up there. Yeah, they've got no representation in the Danland government. They don't even know that being represented in a government is a thing that some people have. Yeah, before the Princess Academy happens, none of the villagers know how to read. None of them get an education. The only thing they know how to do is to work in the quarry and get the linderstone that they can use to trade with the, I guess they're merchants, they're traders. That come up to the mountain. Yeah. So they can barter for food. And maybe shoes and things if they're lucky. Do they get shoes? I think so. Later in the book. I don't know why I'm so fixated on shoes today. But I know that Miri talks about how Marta needs new shoes and how her in her shoes are. Yeah. But I do want to point out that like, even though the villagers don't have a formal education, they're still very wise and they still teach each other things. Like they have sayings, and they have stories they tell each other about like the mythology of the mountain. Yeah, they have a very rich culture. Yeah, they're very like unified in their like understanding of the world and what matters and family and things like that. Very community oriented. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in the story, um, we're on trading day and Miri thinks it's going to be a regular trading day, but turns out the traders bring a, what is he? He's like a escort of the king. The chief delegate of Danland. Yeah. So this is the explanation of how Mount Eskel was chosen. This has long been a Danland custom, said the chief delegate, pushing the wind beaten feather away from his face. After days of fasting and supplication, the priests perform a rite to divine which city or town is the home of the future princess. 
Then the prince meets all the noble daughters of that place and chooses his bride. You may be certain that the pronouncement of Mount Ashok many Denlanders. But who are we to argue with the priest of the great creator God? From the tightness of his tone, Mary guessed that he had indeed tried to argue with the priests of the creator God and failed. And then he goes on to talk about how the king has demanded, or no, commanded, well, that's the same thing, <laughs> that an academy, an academy be created to prepare potential young brides of the prince Stefan. Stefan, whatever his name is. And then he talks about how the academy is going to be in the old stone minister's house near the mountain pass, which is a three hours walk away, very far from the village. And then he says the next day, all the girls aged 12 to 17 are ordered to the academy to prepare themselves to meet the prince. One year from now, the prince will ascend the mountain and attend the academy's ball. He himself will select his bride from among the girls of the academy. So let you prepare. So they have a year to prove themselves worthy of being the prince's bride and queen, one of the future rulers of Danland. So the village is like in shock because as it is a small community-based village, everybody is necessary to be able to work in the quarry and do housework and feed each other and kill rabbits in the winter. So they're like, they've got a lot of discussion that goes on, but ultimately Miri and was it like 15 other girls, go down the mountain to the academy where they meet Tutor Olana. She's mean. She's a mean lady. And she makes that very obvious from when she meets them for the first time. In her defense, she's a terrible person to these girls. She doesn't really need to be defended. But she went from the height of luxury to the most barren and desolate place in the kingdom. So it's a bit of a shift for her, for sure. And I guess she's not used to teaching such, well, uneducated girls, uneducated right. in her eyes. She says that Mount Eskel is merely a territory, and you cannot boast of any noble families, and the chief delegate believes the academy must be taken very seriously this generation. And so she does take it super seriously. The girls are whacked with like the equivalent of a ruler on their hands if they speak out of turn. They're locked in a closet that has a rat in it if they misbehave. But yeah, she she takes away meals. Or they can't visit their families if they if they don't do well enough in the classes in that week. They can't they can't go home to visit their family for their rest day. Which is actually one of the first like major rifts that Miri has with the other girls because on the end of the day before rest day, when the girls are like ready to go home, Alana is unjust towards one of the other girls. And, oh, no, no, it's that Miri helps another girl who's struggling, one of the younger girls. Yeah, it's Gertie. She helps Gertie because Gertie had missed a lesson because she was punished in the closet and she was really struggling. So Miri went and helped her because she has a very strong moral compass and she doesn't want to sit by and say nothing when someone else is having a hard time right so she goes to help her and then alana of course gets angry and tries to tell them that they're both wrong but mary disagrees and so that gets her what do you even call it whipped on the hand yeah it's like old school teachers like hitting kids knuckles both her and gertie's hands and then Alana declares that none of the girls can go home on rest day because they clearly haven't learned the importance of their lessons. And so Miri assumes that all of the other girls are mad at her because Qatar, the like oldest girl, accuses Miri of not taking it seriously and not appreciating the possibility they have of becoming a real princess. And so Qatar spins this like great fantasy for the girls about how great their life would be if they were a princess and so the girls sort of gravitate towards that vision that Qatar gives them and Miri feels super isolated yeah she feels like she's an enemy I guess or she she assumes that she's become an enemy of the girls because Miri is basically isolating herself away from the other girls she has learned her letters from Alana and then she teaches herself to read which 
instills in her for like the rest of the book a desire to know more and to understand more outside of the like world of Mount Eskel. Along with like wanting to learn more, wanting both wanting to learn more and being ostracized from basically the only community she has for a year makes her want to prove herself. And that's why she decides to pursue the title of Academy Princess seriously for the first time. So um, she does. I don't. She doesn't really care about being the bride. She just wants to prove that she can do something, even though she feels weak and unwanted by the village because she's not allowed to work in the quarry. She can only stay home and um, take care of the goats. She feels like she's too small and unhelpful. So she wants to find a path in her life, and the first step to finding that path is becoming the academy princess. Yeah. But all of this reading has the benefit beyond Mary eventually becoming Academy Princess. She learns in her commerce studies that the Linder, her village mines and trades with the traders, is actually worth way, way more in the lowlands than the traders have been giving to her and her villagers. So when they do eventually go home, which Mary also instigates running home. Yeah. The whole, like, let's all run away together is a theme, I think. Like, it keeps coming up. And he's like, rabbits run. Yeah, they're always just running. But anyways, Mary convinces her town council to basically hold an ultimatum with the traders that either the traders trade fairly and with gold coins, or the villagers will find a way to bring their lender down to the next village and trade there. And so through that negotiation, Miri provides her village with wealth and opportunity for the first time in its history. It's like the first step towards feeling power in her own self-worth and like education. When the girls go back to the academy after their great success with the tutor, with the traders, they are able to use more of what Alana taught them, diplomacy to negotiate a better learning environment for themselves. Ultimately, Mary declares that Alana will no longer hit them or lock them in a cupboard or take away rest day from them. Hmm. But she may withhold meals if they misbehave. And so from there on out, there's like a truce between Alana and the girls. And everybody's really able to focus on learning the dances and etiquette and conversation skills and things that any self-respecting princess would be able to do. Yeah, I think that's the first time Alana is impressed by them. I think at that point, she's like, they're up to par with her. Yeah. Because before that, she only saw them as like goat girls, mountain girls. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything. They can't learn anything. Yeah, and it must have been like validating for Alana also, because she probably not unfairly could have the perspective that like she turns them into princesses. Yeah, she probably feels a lot of responsibility too. So like if she messes up, then she's gone. Yeah, the whole kingdom is going to have a goat herder for a queen. So then the ball, we talk about the ball. We didn't even talk about Britta yet. I guess we do have to talk about Britta. Okay, well, let's introduce Britta first. So Britta is a lowlander. The story that she gives is um, her parents die and somehow she found some very like estranged family, I think, like cousins or something. And then so she got sent up there to live there. And so she had been living on Mount Eskel in the village for a long time, but she had definitely been an outcast because, you know, she's a lowlander. She doesn't understand. She probably looks down on us is what everyone in the village is thinking, or at least Miri is thinking. And Greta can't even hear Quarry speak. Like, she acts like it's not happening around her. Have we talked about Quarry speaking? No, we haven't talked about Quarry speaking. Do you want to explain that? Okay, so when the villagers are working in the quarry, it's really loud, right? Because everybody has, like, chisels and hammers. And they'll sing to keep rhythm, which is a very, like, typical thing for laborers who need to keep rhythm would do, right? Especially in stories. But they also are able to communicate with each other. Like, somebody needs to not hit as hard or quick move out of the way. Like, that's going to cave in. And they call it quarry speak. And nobody really 
thinks too critically about how it works, but somehow they're able to communicate over the singing and over the noise of the quarry what needs to happen. Miri can hear the quarry speak sometimes when she's out herding her goats, and she's always been super fascinated by this magic, essentially, that the mountain has. Not that anybody notices that's what it is. She discovers that she can quarry speak too, even though she's never been in the quarry, when um, Alana locks her in the closet and the rat gets tangled in Miri's hair. Miri sort of like accidentally quarry speaks and Gertie can hear her. And the reason why quarry speaking works is because of the Linderstone that just makes up the Academy house. Like I, I think all the floor is Linder, right? Yeah. And not only is Miri discovering more Danland knowledge through commerce and the diplomacy and all the things that Alana is teaching them, she's also learning about her own community's history or communication through quarry speak. And so she's constantly experimenting and trying to figure out how she communicates and when it works, when it doesn't work, what it is that she is sharing. And ultimately, she learns that shared memories are what the Linder like transmits. So when Miri was trapped in the closet, and there was a rat tangled in her hair, Gertie, who had been trapped in the closet previously, was able to hear Mary's quarry speak because she had also been in that circumstance and she had a similar memory. Yeah, that's quarry speak. So yeah, we were talking about Britta, right? Yes. Okay, let's go back for a hot sec. So Britta cannot quarry speak because she has not lived in the quarry all her life. So what she hasn't... I guess this is kind of a gross way to say it, but she hasn't ingested enough linder because there's there's just dust in the air and there's dust in the water. So it's just like become a part of them. Mm-hmm. Right. But Britta, she's like not a part of Mount Askell yet. So that's another reason why she is an outsider because they can't communicate on the same level. And Miri befriends her because she's like right right after the closet incident, she's trying to figure out more of how this quarry speaking works so she tries it out on Britta and Britta obviously cannot hear her but they become friends anyway because they're both outcasts and then oh yeah so then the ball happens Miri becomes (laughs) we're all over the place (laughs) Miri becomes academy princess by vote this is a democratic academy but the only reason it's by vote is because Miri is able to use Quarry Speak to communicate with the other girls what the answers are to the questions in Alana's final test. Yeah, so then they all pass, and then she has top three students. Miri, Katar, and then one other girl. Benna. Benna, yeah. They do a vote, and Miri wins. And so she gets to wear a pretty dress and go to the ball and dance with the prince first. But Britta before the like the night before the dance freaks out and gets really sick and she's sweaty and she throws up and she can't even sit up she just can't she just can't she literally can't i can't i just can't do it um so then mary's like really disappointed but turns out prince stefan is even more disappointed and why why would he be disappointed that britta's not there how does he even know who britta is rena because how plot twist they're childhood friends what how the fuck does that happen why how i don't understand well britta's gonna tell us oh no wait no i'll do it i was trying to remember (laughs) oh well well she tells us later should we let's get to that later she tells us later sorry we're gonna we're gonna have to leave that okay sorry to keep the tension so high (laughs) I'm I'm sure everyone's sitting on the edge of their seat right now. So yeah, Prince Stefan is like really sad and stuff. 100%. He's just like so he's so boring. All of the men in this story are so boring. Like they they're so they're so flat. Yeah, they are the most single dimensional creatures. We don't really get like Peter he's supposed to be the love interest but we don't even get to know him at all except through miri's eyes of course miri like likes him a lot and shit but we don't but like us as an audience as a reader we don't 
we don't interact with him that much. So he's like incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Anyway, got on a tangent there. <laughs> okay. So then Prince Stefan leaves and then Tutor Alana is like, well, now we have to start all over again because you guys failed. You suck. Loser. He doesn't like any of you. None of you are good enough. I don't remember what happens after that. So Peter runs down the mountain. That's right. To see like who the prince picked. Miri goes outside to meet him and tells him the prince didn't pick anybody and we have to stay here. And Peter and her have like an argument because he accuses her of wanting the prince to have picked her. And Miri doesn't defend herself quickly enough because she's also confused because she wants to be able to support her family better. And Alana has told the girls that whoever is picked to be princess, their family can come and live in the lowlands yeah. in a pretty house with a garden. Which is a lie. She lied to them. A liar. <laughs> so Peter runs away. Miri starts to chase after him when, is it Essa? Quarry speaks. No, 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 no. Someone yells and it's Nut, the chef. Oh, yes. He gets his arm broken. But there's also somebody uses the rabbit's run game through Quarry speak. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Essa, um, Quarry speaks to Miri to run away. Um, and so she tries to catch up to Peter, but she doesn't run fast enough and she gets caught bum, bum, by one of the bandits and she gets dragged back to the house where she finds all the girls in their sleeping room with Ulana and Nut. And the bandits are there. And the bandits ask the girls, who's the princess? Because we're going to take her and get a ransom for her, essentially. But we all know that the prince didn't pick anyone. But the girls, using quarry speak and just general group ingenuity, all claim that the prince picked them. And so the bandits, not knowing which one of them is the real princess, decide to keep all of the girls to get a ransom off. But Mount Eskel has other ideas, and a snowstorm comes and traps everybody in the academy. Until spring is what Miss Hale has us believe. Oh, Shannon. You trickster. So then the the bandits just gradually eat their way through the food. And then the girls just are trying to, you know, not make them angry, not die, not get killed. But I think at, the, at a certain point, the leader, he just gets super stir crazy. He gets extreme cabin fever. And well, they try to run away at one point, right? That did not work. That yeah. pissed off the leader man. But our tricky little Miri remembers the story of long ago in like the mythology of the village bandits came and the mountain warned them the villagers that the bandits were there and the villagers all woke up and were able to defend their village so miri starts telling this story and the village girls as is their tradition take turns saying lines of the story so it's a very like creepy sort of experience for the bandits that they all the girls are like speaking with one voice mm-hmm. about how the mountain defends itself and will protect its own. Yeah, it's a very strong scene. Yeah, they, they, all of the girls are like in a circle telling the story. The bandits are creeped out. So they, they bind and gag Miri, mm-hmm. the little leader. And so she decides that she needs to figure out a way for them all to escape before they start getting killed and so she tries to quarry speak into the linderstone hoping that there's a strong enough connection to the village where someone can hear her that someone being peter and he does their love is so strong their love (laughs) and they have lots of shared memories through this like imprecise form of communication through memories miri and peter are able to essentially strategize how the girls will escape. Peter leads the village down to the princess academy and Miri leads the princesses out of the academy. And they're essentially in the middle of a snowstorm. Yes. It's in the middle of the night. Yeah, they can't see each other very well. Cold, dark, and stormy is essentially the vibe. So yeah, all of them escape through the window, but the bandits all wake up. Mm -hmm. 
and they wind up catching Miri and some of the other girls. And then I think some of the girls escape and get back to their parents. But the leader bandit has Miri and he's determined that basically he's going to kill her because she keeps starting all this nonsense, all this shit. And he can't stand that to have his authority questioned in any way, shape or form, especially after the other bandits give up and release the girls because they're creeped out that the villagers somehow showed up outside the academy after the girls told that scary story. Miri, being clever, remembers that there's a ledge just off the edge of the cliff. And so communicating with Quarry speak, she and Pater like heard the bandit off the cliff. He falls to his death and Miri lives. So then they all they all get back to the village and it's happily ever after the end. No, I'm just kidding. There's more. There's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. But wait. So they all go back to the village to wait until the prince comes back in the spring to choose his bride-to-be. Um, and then in the meanwhile, Miri starts a school in the village. She starts teaching all the kids and I think like just whoever wants to learn. And I think that's where she finds her passion mm -hmm. in teaching. Like that's what she figures out is her path in life to become an educator. Yeah. Yeah. Because the village has more supplies and food because of Miri's negotiation, Peter is also able to pursue art, yeah. which is what he's passionate about. And so he gets to carve Linder. And then the spring comes. The prince comes back. And Britta is nervous. So now we get back to what we all wanted to know, which is what is Britta's <laughs> backstory? So it turns out they're childhood friends and her dad is still alive. What? We didn't see this coming. Where did what? Why? Why would he? Why would he do that? Well, Britta's dad hears about the priest's divination that the prince's bride lives on Mount Eskel, so he sends her up there with money to this random family to let her stay with them, so that she'd have a chance to be Stefan's betrothed, a Mount Eskel girl. And it works. It works because she loves him. But also, he loves Stefan. Loves her. And her dad tells Stefan that Britta will be there. When Stefan goes up in the fall and Britta wasn't there, he was concerned. That's why he was so disappointed. Yeah. Like, who, what, what happened to his girl? Where was this mistake? Like, was she dead? Like, so he can't handle it. He's a 17-year-old too, right? So he just leaves. He backs right out of that situation. He's just like, I can't. They're both like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> I can't. I just can't. And so then he, Stefan spends the whole winter making sure that legally, even though Britta is not technically from Mount Eskel, that he can still marry her when he comes back up to the village. And then the priests are like, eh, okay, sure. I mean, she's there. Geographically, it works out. And then they have their big reunion. And turns out all of Britta's fears of, like, Stefan actually not liking her anymore aren't true. She just assumed. And they're in love. And it's a sweet reunion. And they have a little ceremony to become engaged. And Miri is super happy for Britta. And also for herself. Because that means she doesn't have to choose between becoming the princess and helping her family out and staying at Mount Eskel, which she loves, and also staying with Peter. Who she also loves, although she has not said those words yet. And then after the engagement, Britta, she requests Miri, that Miri, come back to Danland with her and be the delegate for the village. So basically represent them in government. And Miri says, no, no, no. I need to stay here. But Qatar... Remember Katar, the one who really, really wanted to be a princess and made Miri think that all the other girls hated her? Well, she should be the delegate because Katar, the only reason she's so salty and mean all the time is because she's miserable and sad. And maybe if she was in Danland, things would be better. And that's what happens because Miri gets her way almost all the time. 
Yeah, that's basically what happens. She gets to keep some books from Tudor Olana. She finds out that the house isn't real. The house that Olana promised their family would get. So she didn't really miss out on anything. And then she goes back to the village and lives her life. The book ends with everybody being happy and the knowledge that in a year, Miri and the other Princess Academy graduates will be able to attend Britta's wedding in Danland. And that's how the story ends. The end. Happily ever after. Except that this is a whole series that I did not know about until I think when we were in college. That's when I first found out there's like four books. Three. I think there's three books. But let's talk about the themes. Okay, so our first theme is education and information. So this is both what factual pieces of knowledge the girls know or Miri knows, what sort of more existential knowledge she knows, like that she can read and the value of reading, not just what she learns from the reading, mm-hmm. as well as her own personal education and knowledge growth about Linder and self-education in learning to quarry speak on her own, even though she's never been in the quarry itself. Through education and information, itty-bitty themes not itty-bitty, sub-themes emerge like exploitation. So the traders and really all of Danland are exploiting the village because the village doesn't know the value of the lender that they produce. And so the traders are able to take advantage of the village's ignorance or their lack of knowledge and education. Yeah, one stone lender is like five barrels of grain, which is like an inconceivable amount to Miri. Yeah, because before Mary knew that, four stones of linder was like barely getting them enough food to last through the winter. Yeah. So it's like learning that the dust mites that you've been shaping into bunnies are actually worth like five lotto tickets. That was a messy Uh analogy. No, I like it. I like it. (laughs) And I should say winning lotto tickets, not just the ticket itself. If it was just the tickets, it's like just having the dust bunnies. Yeah, the dust bunny might be more valuable, actually. Yeah, probably. And then the theme of exploitation also comes up in how Tudor Alana treats the girls. She sees them as less than her, as insignificant, because they're like these country bumpkins that sleep with goats. Like, Alana's not going to give them the time of day, and she's constantly putting them down and reminding them of their, like, lowly status, which leads to... Empowerment! So, using the education that they get in the academy, they, how we already mentioned, bargain the traders so that they get a better deal and they're not struggling to survive they actually become a prosperous village or they they're on their way to becoming a prosperous village and then one other thing they use their education for is to stand up to olana using the rules of diplomacy that she teaches them in class which winds up she's like yeah okay i see you They kind of earn Olana's respect, but only in the way that Olana thinks is respectable. Yeah. Like how you talked about, there's like the right way of, there's like a right education. Yeah, there's definitely a value, like an assumed value of what, of the different types of education. Mm -hmm. So like, even though there's no way that Olana could ever herd goats or kill rabbits or work in the quarry or quarry speak she doesn't respect the girls until they can do what she can do yeah and the girls respect alana pretty much the same regardless like there is an aspect of the girls looking down literally and figuratively on the rest of danland because the rest of danland is weak according to the villagers like they're thin and gangly and they get cold really easily like what a subpar version of humanity according to the escalites yeah but then the danlanders are like these brutes up on the mountain they don't even know anything so weren't you kind of going into assumptions and prejudice i did i like i jumped around but i i think that's okay that's okay should we talk about assumptions and prejudice more 
Sure. Let's segue. Let's segue into that. Okay. So assumptions and prejudice. There's the assumptions that I guess like the two groups, the Danlanders and the Escalites, make about each other. But then there's also the assumptions that Neri makes about herself and about the other girls and about Peter. And because this story is told like exclusively from Neri's point of view, I mean, reading this as an adult, I can see that like this is how a 14 year old is viewing the world. So I don't know, like Rena, when you read it as a kid, were you like believing everything that Neri said? assuming that her assumptions were the truth like were you discovering with the same amount of surprise as Mary when she was wrong yeah I think um I mean specifically like how Mary assumed that the girls hated her because she ruined the rest day for them like I believed that assumption because like after that they didn't talk to her or anything but then Mary was also wasn't reaching out but like when I was when I was reading it as a kid I was just like oh they don't like they're mad at her and so that's why that's why no one's talking and that's why Miri feels so alone but as an adult yeah I can see that it's like a two-way thing like they didn't they stopped talking to Miri but then Miri also stopped trying to talk to them but I don't blame her for it because like she's always she always felt like an outsider so it felt natural to her personality to like not try to get along with the other girls because she already felt completely like super awkward about hanging out with them in the first place yeah because they didn't really hang out just because they were always so busy doing different things yeah, because Miri was always at home and then the other girls were always working in the quarry. But then we learn from Doter, who is Essa and Peter's mom, that Miri's dad was just like, Miri won't work in the quarry and nobody ever questioned it or judged Miri for that. Yeah, so she had just she just thought that all the villagers thought of her as like something that takes up space. Kind of sad, like reading back. She had a really low self-esteem. And everybody loved her. Yeah, and she just didn't see that. With her relationship with her dad, I can see why she thought that her dad, well, why she struggles with believing that her dad loves her as much as he loves Marta. Yeah, for sure. They don't talk, and Marta and her dad spend all day together in the quarry, and her dad is just, like, very gruff with everybody, but because Mary hardly ever spends time with him, like, she just sees him being gruff. And she just wants to hear him say, like, I'll miss you, or I hope you come back. It That comes up a lot in the story. Like, um, at the beginning of the story, she was hoping that he would say, no, she can't go. She has to stay home because we can't live without Miri's help. Yeah, and she compared herself to Marta, and she wondered if her dad would have put up more resistance if Marta was the one who was being taken to the Princess Academy. And then she learns, like, all her... All those assumptions were just because when she was still in her mom's uterus, uh, her mom, <laughs> such a weird way of putting it, but it's true. When her mom was pregnant with her, there we go. That's a better way of saying that's, it. When that's her how mom, it's commonly phrased, yeah. Yes. <laughs> when, when her mom was pregnant with Miri, she got into an accident at the quarry, which caused her to go into labor. And then for a week after Miri's birth, she did not let go of her until she died. And that's why Miri's dad doesn't want to let her into the quarry to work, because he's afraid that the same thing is going to happen. Yeah. And Miri doesn't learn that until Marta is injured in the quarry, and she tries to go help. And her dad, like, basically throws her out of the quarry. And Miri is, like, devastated because her sister's injured and her dad doesn't want her and then it's not till Doter who's sort of like the village mom that's why she's called Doter because she dotes <laughs> consoles Miri and like explains everything like Miri's own family history to her and Miri's 14 or 13 14 I don't why do I keep making her younger she reads very young Miri's 14 and her dad has never told her any of this no one in the village has told her any of it. I guess they assumed that her dad would tell her. But, like, 
if they all know like the type of person he is they would know that he doesn't like talk at all he's like he's an emo he's a very sensitive man that doesn't talk about his emotions yeah i mean i feel like doter says something about that yeah she like talks to herself she's like she says lauren you lauren that's her dad lauren you big dumb tight-lipped fool said doter to herself I should have known better. I should have known he was too much of a man to explain. Everyone in the world knows but the girl, the only one who should. Shame on you, daughter, for not speaking up years ago. And then she explains how Miri's mom died. Stone breaking is what it's called. Ah. And then the next morning, she finds her pa sitting in a chair, just like staring at his hands. And then when she goes over to him, he like, hugs her and says i'm sorry my flower and then he starts crying he always calls miri my flower because miri is the name of a flower that typically grows near linder deposits on the mountain and so now moving into the theme of metaphors as we learn more about miri the human and the mountain we learn how much miri this tiny delicate flower that brings luck in the mountains, like tradition, thrives near the linder deposits. So Miri the person, this small, delicate girl, is strengthened by this hard and imposing mountain and brings luck to her village. Hmm. The same way Miri, the Miri flower, which when you spin it and the petals fall off, you get a wish, grows near the linder and brings luck to the villagers. So there's like this it's never explicitly stated that there's that parallel. But, I mean, Miri is named Miri after this flower. And Linder plays such a crucial role in acting like mycelium and connecting the villagers to each other and to the mountain itself. I love the visual that they're all just one huge mushroom. They're, they're all just mushrooms together. They're all just a family of little mushrooms. They're part of the same network. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about coming of age, character development. All right. I mean, we already talked about self-image, how Miri sees herself as small, weak, unwanted by her village. But then, like, as we get to know her in the story, it turns out that she's a very, she has a very strong personality and she doesn't back down. She's a natural leader. And so then that it follows that her sense of belonging to the village is tied to her understanding of her role within the village and her conception of how she's perceived by the other villagers. So when she doesn't understand if the villagers appreciate her or look down on her or think she's weak, or if the other girls think that she's like a waste of time, essentially, she feels that way about herself. But as she learns to trust the people around her and her own experiences, and learns more about Linda and is like more connected to her roots, like taps into that mm-hmm. mycelium aspect of the whole thing. She's able to connect much more deeply, both with her own image of herself as this like spunky go-getter and her friends, and Peter and her family and her community as a whole. Yeah, she finds confidence in herself by realizing her own her own power. That's all I have to say on that. <laughs> oh harriet just chased junie harriet okay well i guess we have to talk about love Mm. you know when i read this as a kid i was like so into the love story like that's a that's mostly what i remember okay so i was just like oh i'm miri because i'm small and tiny and i'm kind of like too quirky for my own good (laughs) And I like this guy named Peter with a T, not Peter with a D. And so I kind of like fixated on that. And I'm kind of mad at myself for it because like this story is not about the romance. That's not where it's at. I don't know. When I was reading it, I mean, it's true. There's a lot else to this story other than the romance. But when I was reading through it, I was like annoyed with Miri and how much she just obsessed over Peter. She had so many other interesting things to think about, like her studies, like Linder, like the future. And she was just hooked on this boy. And I'm, 
I was very impatient with her, but I don't think it's unreasonable for like, because Mary was obsessed with the love story also, essentially, like this whole story was happening around her. But like, what the thing that her mind kept coming back to was Peter and taking care of her family and Peter and Peter and Peter. And what about Peter? Maybe the prince and then Peter. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You yeah. don't need no boy, Mary. I mean, it's pretty accurate how much value she places on her love for him because like when I was a kid I was just like oh my god I'm so in love I don't know I don't like I don't like how it gets too much into the romance and then we don't see the friendship between them like the friendship that happened between them is like a prequel like it happened way before but we're not introduced to it we just go straight into the love scenes and I'm just like now, now I'm just like I don't, I don't want that. I want, I want some good solid friendship, man. Some, some family fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, we were just told that they're friends and love scenes. Like they almost hold hands, and Neri thinks about it for the rest of the book. Yeah, very chaste, very innocent. Which yeah. is like <laughs> the sweetest bit of love, right? Like the, the like butterflies. Yeah, they stare at each other. They stare into each other's eyes at the the spring festival. It was intense Mm -hmm. for me when I was a kid. I was like, "Oh, (laughs) eye contact." contact. That's too much. Too much. And they can they can communicate telepathically. I mean, that's so intense. So intense for a fourteen year old. I mean, communicating telepathically with somebody you're romantically interested in, I think would be pretty intense. That's for true. Age. Walter. Walter, you're not allowed a cameo. We didn't invite you. <laughs> we didn't introduce <laughs> we you. We didn't include you. This goes off script. He's here to steal Junie's oh. food. Where's Junie? I don't know. Up to no good. Um, but we do have friendship in the story between Miri and and particularly Britta, but also Essa. Essa and Gertie and Frid. Frid, not so much. Frid is like the third character or the third friend in any sort of friend group that is there and seems to be valued but contributes nothing. Yeah, basically. I think Essa, Essa just, she's like, um, she gets an honorable mention because she's Peter's sister. So that's why they hung out. Essa's also. Like, Miri mentioned that she'd always thought Essa was fun and cute, but she was Peter's little sister, so they'd never really been close. Yeah. Yeah, Miri, like, I think she regretted that at one moment, that she didn't know Essa as well as she could. Yeah, I think that's when they, like, we were formally introduced to Essa when they were walking down to the academy. Mm-hmm. Do I kind of get, like, some of my younger sister's friends when... We all started to grow up. I was like, oh, actually, you're kind of like a cool person. But I will always see you as a small child. So, Yeah. So, yeah, friendship with Britta. That's like her first first closest friend besides Peter. One of my, I guess, critiques of the story was that the main characters, I guess, like Miri and Britta, weren't content until they had like secured their loves yeah like their personal happiness was so attached to their romantic success yeah and as a asexual who as a kid that's what I was anyways I'm confusing myself but like the value of any other sort of relationships Qatar is the only person who finds fulfillment in the at the end of the story that isn't attached yeah. to an emotional relationship. Mm-hmm. And she's like an antagonist, so we don't really get to know her that much. Yeah, she's like kind of she's very one sided and like selfish. Like Mary wonders if she's selfish. Oh yeah. Which is not a great look. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't I don't like that about the story. I mean the romance between her and Peter is kind of left open-ended i mean it just ends with them holding hands and like they don't let go (laughs) (laughs) boyfriend girl and they're walking publicly in the village so everyone can see oh right and everyone's staring at them 
You know what? I'm wondering how far, like, incest is my concern. Because <laughs> the village is so small. It's so small. There has to be, like, at a certain point, something has to go wrong. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're marry marrying each other's cousins and shit. But if there are 15 girls of equalish age, that means there are at least 15 different families, right? Because none of the girls are sisters with each other. Yeah, but how long have those families been living up on the mountain? I don't know. What if, what if Peter and Essa are Marta and Miri's cousins, and that's why they get along so well? Where, where are the aunts and the uncles? Why is that not mentioned at all? That is a great question. Every, it's just single unit families. There's, there aren't even grandparents. That's true. Do they just die? Maybe they have a very short lifespan because they breathe in too much linder and then like they die from poisoning or something. That you might actually be onto something because Miri is of like proposing age when she's 15. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the book, she wonders if Peter will ever propose. And that's real young, which implies that they start having kiddos at like 16, 17, which means that her dad is like barely 30. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so weird. Oh, wait, I do remember there being one old guy. It's that old guy with who's like smashed a fly on his face. Oh yeah. She, Miri was telling that story at the beginning to Marta. But whose grandpa was he? Yeah, and how old is old? <laughs> <laughs> I guess just wrink more wrinkly than anyone else. I think Shannon Hale was trying to get out of that one by not mentioning any extending family members. But I think, I mean, if we're considering like that they marry extremely young and like like thinking about um the possible time period that they're living in i mean it's like medieval times right i guess i mean it's 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 not set in like our world but yeah like they they have torches and they have guns in the next book they do have guns yeah but they travel by they travel by wagon and horse and carriage, I guess. And they don't have electricity or anything to generate energy. So if we think about that, then they're probably marrying in the family. Especially since lowlanders don't come up to the mountain. Yeah, and the traders aren't going to be... They're not going to want to stay up there. Yeah. Fraternizing. Fraternizing with the local folk. Yeah. And we know that, like, everybody there has been there for generations because they all are, like, part of the mountain and they have the whole quarry speak thing. Yeah, and they move up the, they move up the mountain, like, once they're done, once, they, once they're done, like, mining or collecting rock or that type, that type of linder and they can't get any more, they have to keep moving up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she was talking about how, like, they've been doing that for generations, so they've been up there for hundreds of years, probably. Well, like, 200 years, if you're having kids every 15 years, is so many generations. <laughs> I couldn't do that math off the top of my You'd head. You'd think that the village would be bigger, then, if they're having so many kids. But, like, they die a lot. From, a from accidents? Like, Mary's mom died. Yeah. And... I think pretty much every family, like even Miri talks about babies dying, like they had this kid, but that kid died, had a little brother, but died when it was a baby. Mm -hmm. Natural selection. There's high turnover, a high turnover rate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So that's how they control their population, huh? The mountain keeps everything in balance and then they return them to the mountain. This brings mycelium to a whole new meaning. It, to a much more real meaning. Yeah. Like, that's what mushrooms do, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's talk about something else. Classism. Yeah, that's a good one. So the, there's a very colonial attitude. I would think of, like, the village as, like, would you say, like, indigenous? I don't think so, because they share a lot of the core customs with Stanland. Like, naming the daughter after 
the father and the son after the mother. So like Peter is Peter Doder's son mm-hmm. and Miri is Miri Lauren's daughter. And that's the same way that they do in the lowlands. Um Junie just pooped. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, okay, Lana either farted or there's a fly in front of her face. Neither thing. <laughs> Kitten poops are gross. They're yeah, really the gross. Worst. Oh, they're so bad. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, they just moved up the mountain at some point. I mean, there's no real history of Mount Eskel. Yeah, as far as we know, these people just sort of, like, sprouted out of the mountain, like mushrooms. So, yeah, I mean, the people in the, like how we said, people in the lowlands saw the villagers, the Eskelites, as, like, stupid, dirty, uneducated goat folk. And they didn't really, they didn't deserve to be a province because they didn't have like any noble family and everyone in the village is poor. And it wasn't till the villagers like learned to speak their oppressor's language, essentially, that they were able to get any respect, which like maintains the oppressor's power, right? Like even though Mm -hmm. the villagers were able to gain some ground, they were still like there's a ceiling on how high they can rise. Yeah. Because the oppressor's values never change. Um, I mean, like, it's basically assimilation. Being educated at the Princess Academy is, like, historically in the U.S., how Native Americans were assimi- assimilated into white American society. Taken from their families. Yeah. Taken, their culture taken away from them. So I don't think that really happened in this book. But I think that only didn't happen... Like, I think that was the intention of Alana. Like, that was her goal, is to, like, get the dirty villageness out of these girls. And instead, Miri was able to discover the power of their villageness and incorporate it into this new knowledge that Alana was giving them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that was the intention of kidnapping the girls and educating them in the ways of the like dominant culture, I guess. Yeah. In any of their interactions with people from the lowlands, Alana, the traders, the chief delegate, none of them treated any of them with respect. And it wasn't until the villagers stood up to the traders that like they actually started getting along. Mm-hmm. Like rem- remember that initial trade when they were like, we deserve more for this Linderstone. Like afterwards, the traders were like hanging out, like talking to the villagers and like the general vibe was like, oh yeah, uh, we respect these guys. Yeah, somebody in, in the book had a line like, I guess it's hard to respect people you're cheating. Yeah. Because of how the traders were treating the villagers, the traders weren't able to see the villagers as fully deserving of any sort of respect. But as the traders treated the villagers better, they were able to see the villagers better. Yeah, because the villagers, like, I mean, the villagers wound up having power over them. Or they realized that they had power over them. Yeah, the power dynamic sort of balanced. That really, that line is good, though. It's just so, it's so, um, I mean, it's true. Like, it's very, it's like what we see in, like, I mean, I guess there's a reason why she wrote it into the story. Because, like, that actually happens in real life yeah where people treat others of like different classes and different races horribly except like in real life when people stand up to their oppressors it doesn't necessarily turn out great yeah i mean it's like like i don't know if the villagers changed the trader's mind about villagers but each trader who interacted with the villager that was able to get their respect was like oh this one's different was able to see it that person as an individual person and not just like one of these villagers mm-hmm. so it's like the you're not like other girls sort of respect yeah <laughs> like you're yeah. not really changing that person's attitude just because they realize that oh you're a unique person and it's not because you're a girl or not it's because they've actually noticed that you aren't part of an a grander assumption that they have of people who look like you. I mean, before they just saw them as a a group, just a a herd, I guess. Though I'm wondering, like, you know, this seems like, I mean, it's a kid's book, so it has to be sort of happy, I guess. But the way that it just gets resolved, like, really easily is kind of, eh. Yeah. It's very simplistic. 
I think that is a function of it being a children's book and a short, a pretty short children's book at that. Yeah, it's only like 300 pages. Who knows how much was taken out of the, like in the editing process of the story, like who knows how many details and conflicts were removed so that just this core story with these main plot points existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if the author had written more about like the conflict, like class conflict and stuff of like that, like the fact that she chose to keep all of the romance is just ugh. I need more balance. Well, you did love it as a little kid, at, or as a a kid. I mean, yeah, as a, yeah, that's true. I mean, this is for like I don't know when did I read this? It's a middle grade, so it's for like nine to thirteen year olds, I think, or eight to thirteen year olds, or something like that. Yeah, I think I read it when I was like elementary school. Yeah, so eight is like third grade. I graduated elementary school two thousand eight. You graduated elementary school in two thousand eight. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was probably like fifth grade, sixth grade when I read it. Yeah, so right in the middle of that age range. Yeah, I guess like kids like wouldn't really understand like politics that much. And even if they could did understand or could get the gist of. Is that really what they would read? It's true. All I wanted to read was the romance. That's what I was looking for. I was like, oh my god, staring to his eyes. <laughs> his crooked smile and the way he smiles. Oh my god, he, he smiles with one side higher than the other, like the goat that she kept from him. <laughs> this is this is a linderstone that he carved. She has the goat on the mantelpiece, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of a sweet moment because he he's thinks that goat isn't as good because the smile's crooked and she thinks it's great because his smile is crooked so then we wonder if they have mirrors and two is peter self-conscious about his smile he wonders what people think of him he's a human <laughs> a human boy a human boy a real boy a real boy but so i think that that's actually like a testament to this book and to Ms. Hale that she was able to incorporate that sort of like undertone of this classism. Like even though it was resolved really quickly and effectively, Miri did have to figure it out for herself. Nobody told her that's how it worked. Mm -hmm. And she did have to argue her case both to convince her village and then also to convince the traders. So like she had to change the decision makers minds which is how advocacy is advertised to work like that's the whole concept of voting right like you get the people the decision makers who agree with you or you convince the decision makers to agree with you through your power to vote yeah which we can all have thoughts about that but that liberal political education component is in the book mm -hmm. even though it's little romance yeah i do uh, yeah i do appreciate like how despite the age gap i was able to interpret it in a completely different way i mean i guess that's a testament to how my interests have changed as i've grown older mm -hmm. but yeah she's a really good writer like really good i just wish the covers of her books i don't know as a kid seeing the covers of her books i never would have picked it up Okay, so the cover of my book is like all the girls are like coming down the mountain walking towards the the little academy in the distance. And they're all like some of them are holding hands because, you know, the girls hold hands so that they don't fall mm -hmm. and die. And then there's the little village on the side. Yeah, see that I totally would have picked up. But like the cover of my book, which is still not the most recent cover, is like a photograph essentially of a girl with a braid looking slyly at the reader like hmm what am I gonna do and the covers of her books now are like very bright solid color enlarged eyes like right angles on their heads like very cartoony yeah it doesn't really I mean when I looked at the covers on our website it doesn't really give the vibe of the story like I feel like the artwork on my cover the cover art is by Tim Zeltner by the way 2005 and then the design is by Lizzie Bromley but I feel like the the way he illustrated the cover reflects the book really well and it's unfortunate that that had to change and it it must just be like a marketing thing to keep up with the times and make the books feel recent and like relevant and they are 
because my the cover art is by Rick Leader. The photograph of the window is by Photo Search, which sounds like it's a stock image. And then the cover design is by Donna Mark. So it's just like a different vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess looking at it, like the design is kind of quote unquote old school. Definitely like from the books like geared towards young adult middle grade readers is more like punchy like at least the fantasy ones have like abstract swirls and colors and stuff like that yeah and I mean maybe I was a weird kid I, I know I was a weird kid but I didn't want to read books that looked like kid books you know like if I was reading a book in a doctor's office I would intentionally choose a book that didn't look like it was for little kids interesting and your response to that is making me feel like that's not a universal choice that children are making when they're picking out their books i mean i've always been really drawn to covers and stuff so like the more artistic the cover is the more i like it like yeah the book you're holding up right now which is it's enna burning also by shannon hale by the way i do not think i would like that like even now like why is she wearing a green dress with an orange background and like superpowers? I don't know. Like what's going on? See, this is a book that I would have picked up as a kid because it doesn't like it does look like a kid's book looking at it now, but it's not like a cartoon drawing. Like I wouldn't even buy or ask for stuffed animals if they weren't like real colors. Like I did not want a pink beanie baby. Real colors? Everything I had, I wanted it to look how it was supposed to look. Oh my gosh. I did not appreciate this divergence from reality. Wow. That being said, I refused to color anything I drew in the color it was supposed to be. Wow, a deep dive into the mind of Lana's childhood. It's a complicated place. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to our analysis of Princess Academy by Shannon Hale. We had fun reading it and talking about it. The next book that we're going to read is... Phantom Toll Booth by... We didn't look up. We didn't look up the author. It's famous. We need to know this. Anyone who's listening should know about the Phantom Toll Booth. Unless you're like super young, like an eight-year-old, then you wouldn't know. But if you're an eight-year-old, why are you listening to this? I mean, maybe they they would get it i think they would be bored i think an eight-year-old would be bored listening to this i think they would be asleep by now tucked into bed uh, hello harriet freddie's meowing outside my door oh junie and harriet are now climbing on me oh my gosh uh norton jester yes norton jester norton jester and his um author photo is of course him thinking as he should very exciting. This one we both actually did read as children. And you can follow us on Twitter. I, Lana, am at Leafy. That's L-L-I-E-F as in Frank E-Y. And I'm on Twitter as Tepid Tears. T-E-P-I-D-T-E-A-R-S. We do not have an official Twitter for this podcast. If you want to learn more, just have to deal with our actual selves so sorry about that if we get actual people listening to us then yeah of course we'll make a twitter just let us know give us a dm or tell us in person if if we know you yeah although if we know you i don't know why you'd want our corporate (laughs) twitter like you you already know us Uh, anyway thank you so much yes thank you see you next time in alphabet and in the doldrums maybe hopefully not (laughs) (laughs) okay thanks bye